Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips, or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown, and help you to change your direction. Hi, Polly. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. The first question, as always, what is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? This is a really difficult one because um, there's been so many things. (laughs) Um, But actually, I would have to say uh, my son's diagnosis and not because of the diagnosis itself, because that, that was just identifying a need and giving me the information that I needed to help him. And that was great. The The difficulty around it was nightmarish. Um, trying to work through the processes to access support, trying to understand what needed to be done. I was working full time. I'm a single mum. And you're sort of adding process after process and research project after research project and and uh, you know you go into this sort of information overload and you can't uh go through it emotionally because um even though it's to do with your child because if you become too emotional you get angry and then that all goes horribly wrong so you're sort of in this world of of constant barriers constant change constant uh sort of battling almost sort of your way through the services and and that and, and it was years um and so so that was definitely the hardest sort of the catalyst was his diagnosis he hadn't changed. He was still fun and and you know challenging and and you know this sort of great, fabulously clever little person. But uh, the what it led to was was really really hard. So when did you first start to notice that Rex might so, be neurodivergent? Yeah, he he was always very different. Uh, he's got an older brother who's 10 years older than him, who was the most laid back human being on the planet, is still is, still is the most laid back human being on the planet. And um, Rex, from when he was born, was very different. He was, he, he was, um, he wouldn't sleep. He was difficult to settle. He was, he was a really huge, huge character. All of his emotions were bigger you know if if he cried his tears were always huge if he laughed it was over the top you know everything was over the top but right up until he started school I suppose because he was in 
his safe spaces and it was all very very relaxed and easy um we could sort of fit in around him but when he started school uh, you know the world sort of blew up every single day school were complaining about his behavior uh, i was divorced from my husband by then and it was uh, there were lots of things around well maybe it's because you're a single parent maybe it's because you work maybe it's because you need parenting lessons maybe it's but you know all of the usual stuff that everybody hears um and uh, because his older brother is 10 years older than him and was at a different school they didn't know that i had an older child so you know it's probably first because you're a first time parent and you need parenting lessons um and every single day he would cry on the way to school and cry on the way home he was bullied um and nobody ever volunteered any information nobody ever said maybe you might want to get him assessed um and so i started researching and uh came across you know autism and adhd and pda and all of these things and i uh thought maybe he's on the autism spectrum and so i brought that up at school and they said no 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 it's just because you're a bad mother <laughs> um and uh you know you just need to work less and he'll be fine um but he he couldn't read uh he he wouldn't settle at school it was it was just a really constant difficult time and just as difficult for him because he really struggled in the mainstream environment yeah, i guess um yeah, hopefully well i'll ask you the question rather than tell you what i think yeah you know, <laughs> i wonder if things are starting to change maybe slowly in terms of recognizing those those signs that there might be differences in, in children. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. This was this was eight years ago. Um well nine yeah, nine years ago when he started school. His birthday is right at the end of the school year. He's an end of August baby. So he started school sort of almost a year earlier than everybody else. Uh, and I said to I said to the local authority, he's he's not ready. Can we defer a year? And they said no. Um, and so he had to start, even though he was really, you know, just four, uh, but he was going to be five during that school year. Um, and he has a, a little bit of emotional delayed development as well. I hope it's getting better. Uh, I know that our local authority has done a huge amount of work since I went through the process and they've done a lot of investment since I went through the process. So I do hope it's getting better. But then, you know, parents I speak to say it's not. So, but I, I do think it also depends on where you live and it can, it, not even necessarily which school you go to, but it can be down to the one individual person in the classroom um so it's very much a, a, a postcode lottery one thing i'm i'm interested in is you know, having been through that journey myself of sort of discovering your your child might be a little bit different or maybe a lot different is how yes. you <laughs> came to terms with it and dealt with the fact that you assume your life is going on one path and then mm. to, because 
you know, if I'm honest, I didn't know anything about autism before I just, you know, we, we started to don't. notice Reese was different. <laughs> you know, and I think I almost feel like I live in a different world now and, and it's no, no better, no worse. But did you, did you come to terms with that fairly quickly or, you know, cause we see some, some parents and this is, you know, nothing, you know, everybody's on, on their own journey, take yeah. a little while to, you know, mm. admit that. And I see that with people. Yeah. I think you start to see, you can see some of the signs in their children and you think you might not be seeing that. So how yeah. did you sort of, did you deal um, with it quickly or did it take you a little while? It was really quick actually, because I knew he was struggling. I knew he was very different to his brother. I knew his emotional responses were different. All of that was sort of very obvious. Um, and the diagnosis doesn't change the person. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't change who they are and that that person that you know. It's just a, a, a it, it's just a list of sort of traits that help you identify how they need to be supported to achieve the best that they can achieve. So I had one the day that I sort of really recognized and accepted it, I had one moment of real panic, not a, not about the, the situation itself or the, or the diagnosis itself, but because I am a bit of a control freak and <laughs> I, it was something that I had no experience of or no knowledge of. And I, I went into sort of an hour of blind panic of, I don't know what this means and I don't know how to address it. And I I remember I, I walked outside of the house, out of the back into the back garden, and I sat there and sort of cried for an hour uh, in a sort of huge panic, which is weird for me because I, I cry like twice a year. I'm not a big cryer. <laughs> But um, I had this sort of moment of panic because, uh, you know, I'm on my own. There was no one who I could say, oh, help me. No idea how to move forward. I didn't know the steps. Um, uh, and the steps are pretty opaque to find out anyway. And, I, you know, I just, I just yeah, I, I crashed for about an hour. And then I was like, I sort of shook myself out of it and said, he's the same person. This doesn't change who he is. And all you need to do is work the problem. You know, actually, all you need to do is find out what the steps are, do the research, get your head in the game, um, pull yourself together, woman, you know, <laughs> in a very, in a very uh, sort of war baby response, I suppose. I just went, oh, pull yourself together. You can, you know, you can do this. And I, you know, got up and went, right, what's, what's the next step? The next step is, is, you know, and it, this was before his diagnosis. Um, The next step is, right, you've got to have that piece of paper so that you have something behind you to fight with to get him the support he needs. And once I'd done that, I I could sort of create a plan, work the problem, go with it, and it was fine. 
but uh yeah it was it was probably about an hour of just just blind panic so when we were preparing for <laughs> today's episode you described yourself as having a modern family mm. so for our listeners yes <laughs> Can you tell your story so that they can understand sort of the context of yeah. your journey? Yeah, of course. So I, I had my older son, Cosmo, when I, I got pregnant when I was 24. Um, I found out I was pregnant about two weeks after I'd ended the relationship with his father. <laughs> so that was interesting. But um, but yes, I had him and his his father had issues and uh, so it was definitely the right decision to not continue with that relationship. Um, and we stayed friends for some years, but his father took his own life when Cosmo was five. Um, and then I met my ex-husband and uh, we got married and uh, some years later had Rex. And that was not the best relationship, although I'm not going to go into details about it because his father and I work very hard to maintain a good relationship to support him, but that wasn't the best relationship. And when Rex was uh, two, we split and his father very quickly went into another relationship with uh, his subsequent partner, Emma, and they went on to have Henry, who is my son Rex's younger brother. And uh, Emma uh, um, called me when when Henry was two. And I'd, I'd, I'd known Henry and seen Henry throughout because, of course, they'd had Rex every other weekend and uh, Emma was fantastic with him. Um, and uh, Henry was just the most gorgeous baby. He was big, chubby gorgeousness. Um, and so Emma called me when they split when Henry when Henry was two as well and said uh, Henry was merely really missing Rex and could we get the boys together and I said yes of course I had no no issues with her she, the, you know I had ended the relationship with my ex husband it wasn't a um, a contentious issue so so I said yes of course so we got the boys together. And we found that actually we got on really well. <laughs> we were very similar people. Um, and so we became really close friends. Uh, and, um, and you know, she's a single mum and I'm a single mum and, and the boys are brothers. Um, Cosmo, my older son, is much older. So he's left home now and he's working and he's he's living his life. But he's very close to Emma and Henry as well. And, uh, you know, we sort of support each other as as single mums together, I suppose. Although it's quite funny because people often think we're a couple <laughs> because I'm saying, you know, hold your brother's hand. And, you know, both boys are saying, mum, mum. So people assume that we're together, <laughs> but we're not. Um, and, uh, we're, yeah, we're just great friends. And so, yes, my extended family is is is. Emma and Henry and our ex is is there and involved and sees the boys every other weekend and has them both together. So Emma and I get our weekend without the children at the same time. So uh, it works really well. And um, 
Yeah, so it's it's a it's a modern family. <laughs> <laughs> Great that Rex has got Henry though as well. Yeah, they're really, really close. There's five years between them. Um and and they're really, really close. That you know, if they don't see each other every week, it's it's you know, they get upset and Rex will say to me, "When when's Henry coming over next?" And you know, because they live about forty minutes away, so okay, yeah. uh, so we we try to get on the weekends that we have the children. We do try to get them together at least one of those days as well. And Emma also works with me for the charity. Oh, fantastic! So so yes, it's all it's all very close. My my stepfather calls her the wife. <laughs> says, how's how's the wife? <laughs> And you say that you grew up in a very matriarchal family, surrounded by very strong women. So I did. Um, you also said that's had a huge impact on you, and I wondered what that, what you think that impact. Yeah, was. it did. I mean, my mum and her sisters are all very, very strong women, really strong women. My father was in the navy, and and my parents split when I was very young, and my mum was a national accounts manager for a big company. Both her sisters uh, ran their own businesses. Uh, one of my uncles was in the Navy. So my aunt was bringing her children up, you know, mostly alone because he was always off at sea. Um, and they are terrifying. They're really <laughs> frightening women. <laughs> but it was very, it was, you know, there was never a day. I mean, it, Bear in mind, when I was born, women still had to have permission from a man to have a bank account. And there were these three powerhouse women who were running their lives and, you know, taking control of everything. And it was a headmistress who was also terrifying. Um, and so there was never a question of whether or not uh, women had equality because in my life, women ran everything. There was never a question of whether or not you could go and do something or, or you know, take, take control of a situation. It was a requirement for you to do that. Um, and, and, you know, no quarter was given. It was, it was, I remember my wedding, my brother gave me away and he stood up and he said, you know, today is the, just the most amazing day. I'm in a room with my mum, my aunt, all of my sisters. <laughs> I think it was the first time that he'd ever sort of been in that position, Paul Alf. But um, but yes, it was. It, it, it there was never a question. You will take control of your life. You have the freedom to do whatever you need to do. Uh, you know, let nobody stand in your way. And I I didn't ever really see the sort of what what's termed the patriarchy at home. It it wasn't a it wasn't a thing. Um, um, you know, men are very nice things. I don't have any issues with any of them. They're they're lovely things. Um uh and and you know it was very much a situation of of uh you know equal rights all the way through that i d it didn't occur to me that i couldn't do what i wanted <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was it was it was a fabulous upbringing so one thing talking about autism and i mentioned mm. earlier that uh 
you know, I knew nothing about autism before, uh, you know, before discovering, you know, that Reese was, was on the spectrum. Mm. Um, so help people listening to this understand autism and, and the role it plays in, in Rex's life and, and also your family's life. Well, it plays a big role in my family's life. My ex-husband is also on the spectrum. Uh, it's been suggested that I probably am. Um, uh, I don't really like it as a, it's a label that just identifies specific traits. Um, It's not a disease. It's not an illness. It's not something you catch. Uh, The brain is a very, very complex thing that nobody really um, understands fully. And we know, uh, we suspect that it is brain development day of conception, but nobody has facts, but that's what is is suspected. Um, I was trying to describe it actually to my mother because she's, you know, born in the war. She's (laughs) (laughs) struggles with it. And I said, imagine she's, she's not bad on computers. I've been working with her on that. And I said, imagine the whole world is on Microsoft and Rex is Apple. And some of his, because she's got an Apple iPhone. I said, some of his apps work brilliantly, better than other people. And, you know, all of the Microsoft apps, they're solid. They work as they work. They're pretty average. They keep going. But on the Apple iPhone, sometimes some apps don't work so well and some are great. You know, it might be the speech app like Reese, or it might be, uh, you know, the uh, emotional control app like Rex, or it might be, it doesn't matter what it is, but it's just uh, learning about the different apps and which ones are going to work well and some work exceptionally well and which ones are going to uh, need a bit more coding. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fantastic way of describing it. I think um, because we talk about autism being a spectrum, yet you still describe as either autistic or not, you know, and I think... Yes. Um, you know, yeah. I think that that's half the battle is getting people to understand that, um, you know, it's just just differences rather than, the, um, yeah. you know, and I think people are, I think sometimes people, I mean, I talk about autism to just about everybody I meet. If I meet somebody in the street, I'll probably talk about it. And I think that's, that's one of the battles is um, people fear saying the wrong thing these days, you yeah. know, even within the community, you know, do people mm-hmm. have autism or are they autistic? Yeah. Some people Languages. prefer either either way, you know, and I think that's... Language has become a really sensitive area. Now, I'm somebody who doesn't take offence at anything. I Same, really don't. Yeah. You can use any language with me like, but, but um, you know, how people choose to identify themselves um, and their condition, you know, some people see it very much as... A- Others see it as a superpower, negative. Others see it as a positive. Um, it's it's a and and language within that has become uber sensitive because it's down to the individual and how they see themselves. Um, and you know, so it can it can make talking about it quite a minefield, actually. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, hopefully by by having conversations such as this, people start to start to listen and understand and realise it's okay to, to talk about it. Um, I think um, my 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 attitude comes actually from the gay rights movement. I loved the gay rights movement in the early in the eighties and nineties. It was very much the message was acceptance of self. Don't look outside of yourself for validation from other people. Accept yourself for exactly who you are and what you are and learn to love that and understand, you know, how you view the world because you can't change how other people respond to you. You can only change how you respond to them. So, so don't try to change everybody else. Don't expect them to validate you. You don't need that validation because you are you and people can like it or not you know ultimately people can say don't like her <laughs> she's <laughs> awful get rid of her um and that's fine i you know it doesn't matter and this is what i i've always said to my boys um look elsewhere for acceptance you know be the person be the best you you can be and let everyone else worry about how they feel about that it's it's not your business i think that's definitely <laughs> something we could all resonate with even uh neurodivergent or not um i think yeah. that's def- definitely important um one thing that's in the news a lot at the moment is adhd yes um and i guess i wanted to get your thoughts on why it's being talked about so much at the moment and um, you know, it tends, it seems to be um, quite a divisive issue at the moment as well in terms of um, you know, diagnoses and people talking. Everything about seems to be a divisive issue at the moment. Um, <laughs> Very true, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, um, Emma's actually going through the process at the moment of diagnosis for ADHD. Um, I think uh, autism, ADHD, they were always things that in the past uh only you know historically they just impacted boys what like maths a lot you know it was very much a the the weird guy down the road uh and we're starting to see it now more and more in girls and women it's it was never really diagnosed in girls and women until the last sort of 15 years i suppose um and that's those numbers are growing. So numbers have 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 grown of all neurodiverse diagnoses because we understand it more. And then they've doubled on top of that because it's now accepted that it impacts women as well as men. And there's a lot of women who are being diagnosed ADHD in their 30s and 40s. Um, particularly has been diagnosed, they start to see those traits in themselves. And women do tend to talk about these things a lot more than men. And I think as women have come more into the the um, the community, there's been a far greater outpouring of discussion and debate around it. Um, and I think that's that's quite a big driver in the whole thing, actually. And then, you know, the growth of the 
campaigning groups who are working across the neurodiverse sector, uh, they are driving much more conversation around it because, of course, it's never really been discussed before. And then in education, the, the, the education has become much more inflexible as they've put more and more and more safeguards and controls and testing and all sorts of things around it. It's become much more inflexible. So those children who might have coped in mainstream before and now sort of right on the edge or on the outside of all of those constraints. And so I think it's becoming much more obvious in education. Um, and and then, of course, because it's now much more, uh, much more is known about it, uh, when you go into employment figures and things, you can start to see the massive differences, uh, you know, the, the employment gaps for people with ADHD and autism. I mean, I think it's about 21% of people on the autism spectrum who are in work, uh, you know, compared to 53% of, of people with disabilities in, in, you know, the total average of people with disabilities, which includes them. But, you know, it's quite a big difference. And I think we just know more and there are more people talking about it and more people opening up and and it's far more accepted there's less stigma attached to it you know to being neurodiverse now is is becoming more accepted i mean as you say there are still people who don't want to accept that their child is different or you know that they they the reason they've struggled with employment is because they might be neurodiverse but more and more it's becoming accepted and um one thing that feels perhaps that's a little bit behind where understanding of autism and ADHD is is PDA so um you know, you, we're we're starting to hear more about PDA um mainly that's because yes. um you know i think well rex I, is rex is PDA and um there are a lot of people who don't even accept that PDA exists. Uh, a lot of those people have never experienced <laughs> working with someone who is. Um, and it's it, the very uh, at the ve it's very basic level. It is a, a control issue. It is a need to control your surroundings to feel safe, and so any any demand placed on you can drive high levels of anxiety and can push you into that sort of fight or flight mode because you don't feel out you don't feel as though you have control and I mean everything I used to ask Rex to do would end in a meltdown and when he got his diagnosis and I started learning about PDA like you know time to clean teeth was a really big one in this house every day morning and night it was a nightmare and uh, so I, I read about PDA and I was like, well, then I, I just need to change the way that I approach the issue. So I bought him five toothbrushes and three toothpastes. And instead of saying time to clean teeth, I'd say, which toothbrush are you using today? Which toothpaste do you want? So he's controlling the process, but the implication of of you know the the demand is is 
it's implicit in what you're doing. It's just that you're approaching it slightly differently. You've got to be a psychologist to be a parent. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, and um, you know, we're, we're going through that with with Neve at the moment. I mean, she's yeah. only three, but um, you know, and uh, as you were talking before, you know, I've been on the on the parenting courses um, to try and uh, they they don't really reflect PDA particularly a lot. No. And something I want to get talking about a lot more because. You know, and I think I'm quite similar in the fact that um, I'm not really, not really too bothered what people think, but they can. I can yeah. see people thinking my child is just naughty, or yeah. um, you know, I'm a bad parent, or when yeah. actually it's completely. You, know, you try reasoning with them. <laughs> we were at. Um, I went <laughs> talking about toothbrushing. I was at. A, um, this was for my son's school, but we. I went to. Um, a session about um, teeth cleaning, um, you know, and how to help because he goes to a complex needs school. And um, the advice Mm. I was given was tough love. Um, And uh, (laughs) uh, I'm not sure if this person had ever met a child with PDA, but (laughs) if you've ever tried the tough love approach, um, perhaps won't be be the most successful tactic. But but yes, it certainly keeps you on your toes. no. Um, it does. And also, but you know, there's, there's, uh, we did with Rex over teeth, teeth cleaning was a, a learning curve for him, you know, uh, explaining to him what happens to teeth if you don't look after them and explaining to him in terms that he could understand at the time, you know, um, and, and I even showed him some pictures of some really bad teeth. Um, and now, several years later, I, I I can say to him, go and clean your teeth because the, he knows he controls the process. He's learnt um, that that self care is important. It's not that you're going to do that forever. It's that you teach them in a different way, in a way that they understand, uh, so that they can take it forward and without causing a massive trauma for yourself and for them <laughs> while you're going through it. Uh, you know, ultimately, anyone who is neurodivergent uses the world differently and sees, um, understands the world differently, learns differently. And if you can teach them in a format they understand, they will learn all of the things they need to learn. It's just a little bit of time and patience. I think that's really good. A lot advice. of patience. And, um, <laughs> hopefully, gives people with uh, you know that think their children or know their children, you know, do have PDA, that a bit of hope that uh, you know, with, so. with constant work and the right advice, we can we can get somewhere. So, um, so you founded Send Unlocked. So, I did. for my listeners, talk about Send Unlocked and, and what it. Well, does. I. S- Suppose real started panic. <laughs> in truth, <laughs> in truth, it started at that moment to panic, where <clears throat> I just had no idea. And following on from that, I started doing research and trying to understand what the processes were, and the information wasn't there. And uh, you know, I mean, I was working in the charity sector, and yet it didn't occur to me to go and look for charitable support for it because it was just school. Um, And 
I was working full time and trying to learn about Rex and trying to find out information. And there was no time. I would be working at two o'clock in the morning doing a research project to try and find out information he needed. There was just no time to go looking for anything else. Um, and I'm, I probably didn't sleep more than four hours a night for about two years. But um, it, it, the, the information was so fragmented. And even when you talk to sector professionals, as you say, you know, that you spoke to the person about teeth cleaning and they said, tough luck, really not a good idea. Um, there's a mix of audience and ideas. It's not just a clear black and white, this is what you do. Um, it's It's thousands of organizations that you have to deal with because it's not just public sector it's it's the private sector and finding specialist clothing because name tags or seams hurt or it's it's finding a hairdresser who can cut your child's hair it's finding equipment that your child may need if you have another disability it's finding um charitable support it's finding legal support it's finding people who understand the process and quite often if you speak to three different sector professionals you will get three different answers so there's no one way forward and because there is a lot of opinion in there as well um uh, that gets mixed in to the responses that you get from sector professionals. I had a, an educational psychologist tell me that Rex was too good looking to access support. And I said, what? And he said, well, nobody's going to believe there's anything wrong with him because he's too good looking. And I was like, <laughs> I agree, he's gorgeous, but that <laughs> doesn't mean that his brain works. You know, and, and so so you're mixing information and advice with opinion and to find the right way forward is really really hard and so i i was the the head of it for a for a, a military charity and i as i said neurodivergent i'm really good with data <laughs> i love a spreadsheet hate a party um and so so i was all, all the way through the this process, I was thinking there's got to be a way of organizing this in a format that people can understand it, that people can follow it. And then I started talking to other parents. I got Rex out of mainstream eventually, it took about four years. I got him out of mainstream and into a, a specialist setting that could support him. And they're amazing. And he's very bright. And so, you know, he needed somewhere that could push him and encourage him uh, intellectually as well. And so um, I did that. And then I thought, I'm no campaigner. I'm rubbish at that. And I'm, you know, I'm not carer material uh, because I would prefer to be buried in a spreadsheet. Um, and so what can my skill set bring to the sector? And so I designed the Send Unlock directory. And uh, it is, I mean, it, it's called the Send Unlock Directory because it started from my point of being a parent of a child with a send need. But actually, when we started really developing it, 
there seemed no point in uh, barriers around it based on age or anything else, you know, any other protected characteristic. It doesn't matter because all it is is information. So the directory is a platform online and in an app, which is designed to organize the information. And uh, so we started with the directory of support, which is where organizations can go and register what they do. And as I said, it, it, it could be a charity, an autism charity or a mobility charity, or it could be a hairdresser who has experience of cutting hair, or it could be we've got clothing designers on there who make specialist clothing brands. We've got sports and dance troops and, and uh, you know, uh, animals. You know, we just signed up one called You Therapy who do sheep therapy, which is it's brilliant and kids love all of that, especially if they've got um, additional needs. Animals are a really big, big part of it. So it doesn't matter what you deliver. And maybe the organization delivers it delivers services to other organizations. So we've had a lot of organizations who offer in-house training to um, schools or to employers. We've got employment programs and uh, employment training for people. So there's all sorts of things on there um, because we wanted to create somewhere where people could go and find out, find the support they needed specific to the issue they're having at that moment in time, because you're going to work through loads of those organizations throughout your, your parenting uh, career. Um, and then the other side of that was that I, I met loads of other parents and they had far more information than most of the sector professionals because they've got the experience of accessing the support. And so we've built it in almost a sort of trust pilot way where people can go on and review the service or the product or the opportunity that they've accessed through that organization. So they can go in and they can say, this organization saved my life or these ones never answered the phone uh, so that they can actually help other families to make informed decisions about the organizations that they go to for support. So that was that was stage one. Stage two was about uh, projects to identify uh, the information. So there's two on there at the moment. The first is we're we're just launching a, a review of um local authorities and send IS teams across the country because we want to find the best. We want to find the best ones in the country to collaborate with so we can understand what it is they are delivering uh, that is succeeding where others are really struggling. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we forget is that sector professionals are dealing with the same barriers we are. So we want to understand how they're addressing those barriers and and what they are what they're doing that's that's working. So that's one. And then the other one uh, is what's the bit of information that you wish you'd received at the beginning of your journey. So what we want to do is create a sort of first steps thing, which goes back to my hour of panic. <laughs> <laughs> Again, what is when you come into the sector? 
what is the one bit of information that changed things for you that helped you move forward because we want to create a kind of first steps you know sort of area where families can go to understand you know what may suit them and what's the best way forward to start the process to access support um and then there's an area for recommending resources like books and reports and talks and all that kind of thing. And we even put in place a glossary so families can go on and they can add words or acronyms. Now, I come from the military charity sector and I did not believe anyone could out acronym the military. <laughs> <laughs> the sector have done it. So, uh, but organizations can also words and acronym families may find it's just a, it's just a, a platform through which we can actually organize data it's not a social media platform there's no one going backwards and forwards and having conversations because that would just be duplication that already exists you can already do that in peer-to-peer support groups on facebook and on twitter and you can go on and vent and you can do all of that what we want is the factual data um and and not driven by my opinion but by user experience <laughs> it sounds like it's grown massively since uh, since it's, you first it's, started it's growing it's growing <laughs> <laughs> what, i've got um, so many ideas flying around in my head of things i want to do and um and uh, yeah so i just need need more investment and more money to be able to do them all cuz they just they just keep sort of piling in <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of questions there one is so what does what success look like for send unlocked um and i know that's constantly moving like? yeah I, well what i want that there are two things um because, and one is for the whole sector, uh, is, and, and we can be a, a part of that. No organization can deliver everything that everybody needs. It's not physically possible. And any organization that says, come to us and we'll take care of everything and change your life is is exaggerating wildly. Um, but um, our vision is a, simple and effective structure of support accessible to all who need it that is that is the key vision um and, and uh, a part of that success i hope will be us sector the if with the with the sensible and and organized delivery of information um and to do that, that is collaboration. That's collaboration with government. That's collaboration with local authorities. That's collaboration with schools. That's collaboration with employers and and the whole employment sector. Um, uh, you know, it's it's about positive work working, really. Um, so that's 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 the key vision. Um, the other one is slightly more ephemeral because there is um, a real culture across the sector of us and them. And 
not just between parents and schools or parents and local authorities or or anything, but even between schools and local authorities and employers and charities. I've even seen it happen between departments where a department will say, well, we would have delivered if they next door had done their job, you know. And it's and it's a blame culture that for vulnerable person um, or something that hasn't been delivered effectively, uh, people are terrified of that landing on them. And so there's a constant deflection of blame. And for me, success would be changing that from uh, being terrified of getting the blame to focusing collaboratively on the individual. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the blame culture, the us and them culture, uh, it would, or it's supporting, supporting the removal of that completely, because I don't think it's effective. It's not effective for the organizations because they're terrified of constantly being ripped through the mud. It's not effective for families because they feel isolated and bullied and alone. It, it, it's just a toxic uh, sort of feeling across everything. Um, and so that's why I, I always say, you know, I, I don't sit there looking at the public sector going, you're failing, because they're doing the best with what they've got. And it's, it's, it's our job to support them to be able to do that better. Um, you know, people often talk about, oh, well, it's the money. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of wasted money in public sector services. And I, I mean, I could walk into Department of Education tomorrow and make some changes like that, which would free up lots of money. Um, but it's it's about, um, it's it's not all money. It's not all money. That A lot of it is attitude. A lot of it is is um, fear. Um, some of that is fear of change. You know, we talk about positive change. Uh, you know, some of that is fear of change. This is the way we do it. And we don't know any different way. Um, so, yeah, those are the two things. <laughs> <laughs> so how can people or organisations get involved? Well... How can they get involved? Uh, any organization who delivers anything, as I said, across the sector can register. Uh, they can sponsor. They can get involved and sponsor the charity. And uh, we have corporate sponsorship packages that they can um, they can uh, access. And I'll send you a copy of that to <laughs> send out with it. Um and um and you know they can donate they can they, they can volunteer they can do they can run fundraising events for us they can anything they like make us their charity of the year um uh you know the biggest issue for us uh as with most organizations is fundraising mm -hmm. fundraising is my most hated thing <laughs> <laughs> i just want someone to say there's all the money Go and deliver all of your vision. It's fantastic. Um, but that, you know, that fundraising in a cost of living crisis doesn't just impact the individual. It impacts uh, companies and how they uh, spread funds out as well to, 
supporting charities. So, okay. And um, you talked about your own neurodivergence as someone that's perhaps beginning their uh, journey, as I am, on discovering you know whether <laughs> whether I am somewhere on the spectrum. Talk to me about how your sort of journey with how you. Uh, well, I think um, I've I've always been a little bit of an oddball, <laughs> I admit. <laughs> um, but I never really saw that as as a, a, a negative. It was, you know, as I said, if you like me or you don't, it it, it never really made any difference to me. Um, you know, I am who I am, and I've. N- never been you know the sort of person with the big clique of friends I have really close friends who I'm very close to who none of whom are in the same groups they're all sort of dotted around in different in different uh areas but um when when Rex was diagnosed and I was going through the process of support for him um some of the things some of the traits that come up you know total lack of understanding of social hierarchies, for example, uh, has never been a, 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 it's always been a thing for me. I've never really understood why someone based on age or job title should, you know, be seen as somehow more. Um, uh, uh, Socially, I've always been sort of reserved when my friends at school would go clubbing, I would go, yeah, see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) The thought of all those people and uh, a lot of things when I was going through and and this, which made me sort of go, "Mm, that's, that makes sense. Mm, That makes sense. My uh, intellectual capacity compared to my ability to engage at school, um, which uh, was school was not an environment I thrived in. Um, uh, you know, I I learned far more from books and debates and lectures that I watch alone rather than rather than engaging in formal education. Um, and um, but but I haven't gone for diagnosis and and. Uh, Emma thinks I should uh, purely based on the fact that it would support the charity. Um, I have never really uh, felt the need. Uh, You know, I am who I am. Uh, Whether or not that means my brain has developed differently, that's fine. Um, I've never had a, a, a sort of issue about it one way or the other um i think probably one day i will but what puts me off and the reason i i haven't gone and done it and i've done the question you know emma sent me all the questionnaires that you do for adhd and autism and all of those and i've done all of them and all of them came out going yeah you need to go <laughs> you need to go be, be diagnosed uh, or you would benefit i think it says from from assessment um but uh, the the thing that puts me off is the years of process. I mean, I, I you know, is it really going to change anything massively in my life now? Probably not. Is it going to 
the time that it may impact is if I ever needed medical intervention for mental health issues. I haven't so far, touch wood. Um, so so I, I just sort of look at it and think that looks like too much like hard work and I I don't have two thousand pounds to spend on going privately, so uh, so I just haven't gone down that route. But you know, I'm not objecting to it. If anybody out there wants to say, "Oh, I'll assess you free," <laughs> I'll be assessed quite happily. <laughs> and um, before we so, yeah. uh, before we get on to quick fire round questions, um, mm-hmm. I think when you know we've talked about perhaps parents thinking that their children might be different or neurodivergent and you talked about that sort of panic and um Mm. you know worry obviously rex is amazing like talk to me about you know give those people some some advice when they're first starting out about um you know trying to lay some of the fears that uh that comes with thinking i mean my my uh my overarching thing is don't look at that child and see nothing but the diagnosis. See the person that they are and that you love and that is amazing in their own ways. Look for which apps on their phone, <laughs> on their iPhone, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, need help and which ones are, are exceptional because they all, everyone has, everyone, neurodivergent or not, has has apps on their phone that work better than others. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, don't, don't look at them as some other people will, um, as, as different. Ignore what other people say about, oh, it's overdiagnosed now. Uh, ignore all of that. Um, don't worry about what other people think. You know your child better than anyone else. Um, and so so you make the right decisions for you and what's right for you. Other people's opinions, because uh, other people always have opinions. <laughs> always. <laughs> so just put other people's opinions to one side and you know, use your own knowledge of your child and your own common sense and your own belief in what they need because you'll probably be closest. No parent is perfect either. Don't try to be perfect because if you try to be perfect, you will go too far the other way and you will damage your child irrevocably. (laughs) So don't try to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's not physically possible. Um, Just do what you think is right uh, for your child. And you probably won't go for. I think that's great advice. Log everything, every every single uh, process that you go into, every single uh, time you go and deal with a school or a local authority or anything. It's all evidence based. So get a book and log everything every day. Sit down and go. Oh you know, he had a meltdown today. It started at this time. This was the trigger. This is how we addressed it. This was the outcome. This is how long it lasted. Or, you know, every time somebody has a telephone call with you or a conversation with you, 
confirm it back to them in writing so that you've got a record of it. Log everything because that is your evidence-based research, which will support every step that you go through. Yeah, I think um, I think you know we're everyone in that journey has uh, found that out either the hard way or hopefully in yeah. advance. So hopefully yeah. everyone will take that on board. <laughs> um, so quick fire round questions. Yes. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Mainstream media. Um, mainstream media don't report the news, they report the bad news. And even if they report a good story, it's normally somebody overcoming something bad. Um, I and, and that gives people the impression that the world is 80% bad and it's not. The majority of people are living their lives and doing good things. And, you know, yes, there are bad things. I accept that. But it's probably 80-20. So I would change the mainstream media and make them report news, not bad news. okay and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start work out the why the why is the most important thing because that will lead you to the how and the what why do you want to change something is it financial is it personal is it professional is it because you've always had a passion for something whatever the why is will lead you to the what and the how Okay. And what's going to be your next big change? Oh, hopefully fundraising is going to grow massively and I'm going to get a little bit more work-life balance and get a day off occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That doesn't happen very often. Um, So, so yeah, hopefully uh, a little bit of work-life balance at some point in the future. (laughs) To all the corporates out there who want to sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) We'll clip that bit. Uh, (laughs) Um, and if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would you recommend and why? Um, who would I recommend for you to speak to on the podcast? I think probably uh, Ed of Nanza. Nanza is the Norfolk and Norwich Send Association, and they're just brilliant. And they've just done a big neurodiversity festival uh, earlier this year, which I spoke at, and it was brilliant. And uh, they work with people of all sorts of different disabilities, as we do, but they have just started really growing their program around neurodiversity. And uh, they're a very interesting team. Okay, well, we'll certainly uh, certainly reach out to Ed and uh, hopefully record an episode with him soon. Um, Polly, I just want to say thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's been amazing to hear your story rex and cosmos stories um and also find out more about send unlocked and what you're doing you know having been part of the community you know as being you know um the send community information is absolutely key and often you find out things too late or like you say through other parents so if there is somewhere where where people can find out more information to to try and make that journey a little bit easier then then you know more power to you so hopefully um hopefully we'll help you with that fundraising mission um and it was amazing to talk to you (laughs) thank you it was wonderful to talk to you and thanks for inviting me